Welcome back to the Harvest Baptist Church podcast here in Burlington, North Carolina. I hope you've got your Bible and a pen and paper ready to take some notes today, maybe even a cup of coffee, as our pastor continues his series in the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Let's go there now. chapter 1, and I keep your Bibles open. I want to read it with you, and then I'm going to kind of recap um, what we did last week. Uh, let's, let's read Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Israel, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. All right, stop right there. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Babylon is an ancient civilization in Mesopotamia. Today, it's the modern country of Iraq. Babylon was the name of the country. Babylon was the name of the capital city. It is, it is still there today. It is 55 miles south of Baghdad in modern-day Iraq. Nebuchadnezzar comes over to Israel, to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, and he besieges it, and he starves them out. They surrender because his, his army was mighty. So he takes, as custom in war, he took the king back to Babylon. He took all the nobles. He took all the money. He took all the treasure, all the jewels. But he took certain young people back to Babylon. And that's where verse 3 starts. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuch, to bring some of the children of Israel, some of the king of Israel's descendants, some of the nobles of Israel, young men. They wanted young men too. They had to be men. They had to be young. 12, 13-year-old kids, men, young boys. And he said, we want young men, 13, 14 years old, in whom there was no blemish, good-looking, handsome, nice-looking young people gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace. And they were going to take these young men in whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king also appointed for them a daily provision of his meat. The King James says the king's meat. It means his food, his delicacies, and of the wine which he drank. And three years of training, this was a school they went to, it was three years, 12 months a year, three years training for them. And at the end of that three years, they might serve before the king. They might be servants of the king's government. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. All right, we'll stop right there. King of Babylon goes over, conquers king of Israel, takes the spoils of war back to Babylon. He leaves a, a governor over there and then puts up a false king and rules it. In fact, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar ruled the whole world. And the Bible tells us that the reason God gave Israel to him was to judge the sins of Israel. Israel was rebelling against God, so God let them be taken. So they take 75 to 100 young men and they take them back to Babylon, and they train them for three years. Now, we talked last week about what Babylon and Jerusalem meant symbolically in Scripture. Babylon was a real city, a real kingdom, and it's still a real city today. 
But in the Bible, Babylon is mentioned 260 times. Babylon is one of the most prominent cities in the Bible, except for Jerusalem. In fact, Jerusalem and Babylon are mentioned more than any other cities. And, and symbolically, they mean something. They're real cities, but symbolically, theologically, they mean something. Over on this side of the platform, this represents Jerusalem. It is the city of God. It is the city of God's people. It is the city where the temple was. It is the city where they worship the true God. They believe the true God. They honor the true God. It is the city of God. Babylon, on this side of the platform, symbolically represents the practice and philosophy which originated in Babylon and spread throughout the world. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says, Babylon is understood to be all earthly resistance to God and the total world culture apart from God and in opposition to God. So Babylon, in the Bible, you see the word Babylon, it is anti-God, it is against God, it fights against God. And there are two cultures in this world, always have been, always will be to the end. There is a culture represented by Jerusalem. It is bibliocentric in its worldview. It starts with God. It ends with God. There is another worldview, another philosophy in the world that is centered in Babylon. It is man-centered. It started in Genesis chapter 10. Again, I'm reviewing from last week. Genesis chapter 10, where Noah came off the ark, his three sons, they had children. One of the descendants of Noah was a guy named Nimrod who founded a, a city in the plains of Shinar in Babylon and he named the city Babel. The word Babel means confusion. He founded a city Babel and it was a, he was an ungodly man. Then later in Genesis chapter 11, they built what is, we call the Tower of Babel and it was, a, it was the first organized opposition man had to God. They said, let's come together, let's rebel against God and God came down and confounded their languages. Up to that point, everybody spoke the same language. God confounded the language and separated them and stopped them from building that one world secular kingdom. But the philosophy stayed the same. The tower failed, but the philosophy stayed the same. And it spread and it is still in operation today. And this is how it works. It's how it worked in Babylon. 603 BC is when this story took place. Jerusalem fell 603 years before Christ was born. They brought these young people from Israel and they were going to retrain them, reprogram them. Their purpose was to re-educate them so they could one day place them back in the service of Babylon. They wanted young people. Why? Because you can't re-educate and retrain old men. They're too set in their ways. And last week, I told you, that's what Hitler did. When Hitler rose to power in pre-World War II Nazi Germany, Hitler said, I will eradicate thousands of years of domestication. That is how I will create the new world order. Hitler said, I'm going to do away with everything you've been taught for thousands of years, and I'm going to create children, a Germany that believes differently. And Hitler did not start with the old people. He started with the Hitler Youth Movement. And he re-educated and retrained the young people of Germany till that in World War II, they believed so much in what he did, they gave their lives and they killed six million Jews and thought they were doing God a favor. How? Because they were re-educated and retrained. And that is what happens in Babylon. 
And last week, I also put up a, a slide, a screen, and, and I took it from the, the website of an organization called the American Humanist Association. You go to their website, you click on their board of directors, you, you, you Google humanist, and you will find that people who say they are humanist are not people you've never heard of. They are, they are politicians, they are world powers, they are world leaders, they're leaders in this country in entertainment and politics and, and economics. They, they are movers and shakers and they are humanists. What does a humanist believe? We know because of their website, they're not ashamed of it, they're proud of it, and they have issued three manifestos but what they believe, Humanist Manifesto 1, 2, and 3, 1933, 1973, 2003. And they said, and I put quotes up here from that last week, they said, there is no divine purpose for man, for the human species. God, there's no God. The universe is self-existing and not created. They don't believe there's a God. They don't believe he created anything. The universe is self-existing. Uh, and humanism is always, evolution has been the foundation for humanism. And, and it, they used to say that the universe started with the Big Bang Theory. Now, you may have heard there's a new theory that the universe is, is eternal. It never had an existence. That's their new theory now. They believe there is no deity to save us. We must and will save ourselves. They, humanists believe there is no God, there is no creation, and they believe in a shared world. Uh, humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. That means if you have something and somebody needs it, they take it from you and give it to him. Nobody should have more than anybody else. That is not fair. That is humanism. That is socialism. That is communism. But it all has its roots in humanism, and it has its roots in Babylon. It is the Babylonian culture. It is the anti-God culture. And Gloria Steinem, I put the quote up last week, Gloria Steinem, some of you baby boomers like me, remember Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, they were two leaders in the feminist movement in America. They both signed the Humanist Manifesto, 1973. Gloria Steinem said in Time Magazine in 1973, she said, by the year 2000, 14 years ago, she said, by the year 2000, we will, I hope, raise our children to believe in human potential and not in God. And I said to you last week, and I'll reiterate this week, she was right on. We have raised our children. We have raised a generation. And, and somewhere about 2003, 2004, we turned the corner. Look, you and I, baby boomers, we were raised in a culture that was God-centered. It was bibliocentric. And when I was born, they taught creation in the public schools. But we have changed, and now we are not America is no longer a Christian nation. We are a secular nation. We have moved, our spiritual headquarters has moved from Jerusalem to Babylon in my lifetime and in your lifetime. So, but it's always had been. These kids in Babylon, 603 BC, they face the same battle our kids face today. James Dobson said in 1973, he said, there's a culture war raging in America and the winners of the culture war, the prize is the hearts, the souls, the minds of our children and our grandchildren. And that is what it is fought among the children. Not fighting us, they're fighting for the children. Now, the control of the culture war, let's see what they, they sought to do, all right? They bring these kids, 75, 100 kids from Israel that have been taught God, taught to acknowledge God. And look what they did. They, they had to be good looking. They had to have certain characteristics. 
that he put them through a three-year program. At the end of verse four, they might the ability to serve in the king's palace in whom they might teach what? What's the first thing they're going to teach them? The what? The what? The language. They're going to teach them the language and literature of the Chaldeans. They're going to teach them the language, first of all. Now, that language entails a lot. The Babylonian Empire had three languages. One, they had a language that the common people in Babylon spoke. Two, they had a language that the, the government, it was the language of government that, that is like English today. It was understood throughout the Middle East. And three, in Babylon, they had a mystical language that the, that the, the, the magicians and the sorcerers spoke. So that entailed a lot. But I'm going to explain to you today that in our culture war today, they're teaching our children a new language. Now, when I found out this morning early that our screen was broken, it really threw me in a tizzy because my whole message this morning is based on definition of words, and I was going to put them up. So I came up with something that maybe helped you remember it better. Blake, you're going to help me. Come on up here, son. Stand, you, you stand right over there. You go to Babylon. You're in Babylon this morning because I know who your mom and daddy are. God bless you. That's good. <clears throat> Let me see. Mike Adams, Mike Wise. Come on up here, Mike. You look good. Button your coat there. Come on over here to Jerusalem. That's where he needs to be. All right, now here, again, this is, Blake's a fine Christian young man, so, you know, they're just, they're illustrating here. But Blake, how old are you, son? 12. He's 12 years old. About 9, 10, 11, 12, younger. That's who they teach in Bible. Mike, how old are you? How old are you, Mike? Never mind. Uh, Mike's, Mike's at least 50, and uh, you can't teach Mike. See, somebody's already taught Mike the wrong stuff. So this is who we educate in Babylon. And I'm not talking about school books, although that's part of it. I'm talking about the culture. What is the culture? I've given you a working definition of culture that works anywhere, not mine originally, but I'm telling you, the culture is what most people do most of the time. What most people do most of the time. Now, pre-World War II, most of the people most of the time in this country operate on Christian principles. They may not all have been Christians and saved, but they all operated under principles. We all operated. There's a God. We got to honor him. Not everybody did. That was the principle. Nobody argued that. Now, it's not. We have moved from a culture dominated by Jerusalem to now our culture in America is dominated by Babylon. And the first thing they did is they sought to change our language. Let's unhold this up just like that so people can see it. And when I get through with the first one, just take it off and just throw it on the floor because we're going to the UK. Mike, same thing with you. You hold it up. When I get through with the first one, just throw it on the floor. Now, stand right up here and eat. Uh, Blake, you get right up here in front of this thing. So equal Mike. Okay. Now, what's the word? Tolerance. Big buzzword today. Big buzzword today. Now, you see, let's say... Uh, your kid, Johnny Susie, goes to school. And they're in the fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. They come home, you pick them up from school, and you will say, what'd you learn in school today, right? And what will they say? How many of you ever ask your kids, what'd you learn in school today? And what'd they say? Nothing. There you go. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Christian school, public school, they ain't learning nothing. You hear them tell it. But they are, obviously. Yeah. Pick Blake up and say, Blake, 
What'd you learn in school day? Well, we had a lesson on tolerance. And so uh, Holt and Susie, see, they were raised in Jerusalem. Their families, they went to church, they found Christ, they served Christ, they honored Christ, they lived for Christ. Now to them, tolerance means this. If I tolerate something, I just let it exist. You know, I tolerate it. It's there. Look, I know it's wrong. I know it's no way it's right. But you know, I'm going to, my manners, my, they taught me to treat people right and kindly. And so this person who does things that I know are wrong, I'm just going to treat them decently. That's tolerance in Jerusalem. That's tolerance in past generations. But see, tolerance over here, tolerance over here today in the new language in Babylon, tolerance means this. Every way of thinking and every way of doing are equally right. They're not wrong. They're just different. All right, here, Mike. There's a kid on lives on his block, young young adult, who uh, is into drugs. He uh, he has sex with multiple women. Kid lives down the street. Mike, neighbor, he's into drugs. Been arrested for drugs. Does drugs. May sell drugs. He's got three kids, but three different women. And Mike says, you know, I don't want my kids to play with that kid, hang out with that kid. But you know, I'm his parents are nice people and. And I'm, you know, that's tolerance to Mike. Over here to Blake, Mike's son, that kid lives down the street. He does drugs. He sells drugs. He's got three children with three different women. To his tolerance, that boy's lifestyle is just as good. It's just as right. It's just as spiritual as what his daddy says. They're not, nothing wrong with either one of them. They're just different. That is tolerance in Babylon. And see, some of you, like me, you don't believe that. You don't believe that. But it's true. It is true. That is what tolerance is in Babylon. In, in Babylon, listen, they use our vocabulary. They don't use our dictionary. They say the same words. They just mean something different. Now, give me the next word, guys. This is moral judgment. Moral judgment, to make a moral judgment. Here's Mike. There's the boy down the road who does drugs, been arrested for drugs, sells drugs, have sex with all the women. Mike makes a moral judgment. That young man's lifestyle is morally wrong. It is sinful. Now, how does Mike base his moral judgment? What is Mike basing his moral judgment on? What? The Bible. Look, our laws are based on Judeo-Christian principles, which are the Bible. So Mike, this kid down the road, into drugs, sex, whatever, Mike says he's wrong, it's sinful, but, you know, his parents are good people, so I get along with them. But he makes a moral judgment that that is wrong, that is sinful, and he says to his kids, that kid is wrong, that kid is sinful, I don't want you hanging out with him, Right? Over here, Babylon, they say we have no right to judge another person's views or behavior. You 
if I judge, listen, he, old Joe there that's got drugs and been arrested for drugs and sells drugs and does drugs and has got three kids with three different women, Joe's a good guy. He's fine. There's nothing wrong with what he does. My daddy just don't understand it. My daddy's so old-fashioned, he don't understand. There's nothing wrong with that. That, there is no moral judgment because there's no morals. Uh, give me the next, get, drop the next one, guys. Personal preference. Personal preference. Now, to Mike, personal preference means what color suit I buy, whether my favorite color is red or blue, whether I pull for Duke or Carolina. No, that really is a moral judgment, isn't it, Duke or Carolina? But anyway, so I was, see if you're awake. <clears throat> whether I like liver and onions or whether I like cheeseburgers, that's a personal preference. And, and, and so to Mike, when you say personal preference, it's things that don't really matter, whether it's red or blue or steak or liver or, you know, dressing in a suit or dressing like that. Not right or wrong. But over here, to Blake, to, to, to Blake's generation, to, to Babylon, a per personal preference can include red or blue, liver or steak, but it can also include your sexual behavior. How do you choose? You choose to say, well, look, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have sex with anybody until I get married. Okay, well, Joe over here has got to have sex with every woman he can and has kids with him. But you see, over here, personal preference means they're not right or wrong. I'm, I'm going to wait till I'm married to have sex. Joe has sex with five women every night. It's just like I like blue, he likes red. No big deal. It's all the same. Now, see, you, some of you old people, older people, you, you don't get that. I'm telling you, that is the truth. That is how the world operates. Sexual behavior, morals, what's right and what's wrong, and religious beliefs are individually determined and equally valid in Babylon. You want a religious belief? Fine. You want to believe in Jesus? That's good. You want to believe in Muhammad, Allah? You want to believe in trees? You want to believe in nothing? It's all the same. No matter. We're all going to heaven. But if you say, if you say Jesus is a way to heaven, that's fine. But if you say Jesus, if you don't have Jesus, you're going to hell, you're intolerant, you're a bigot, you're wrong. That's how, the, that's how, that's how it works. Give me the next one. And see, it all comes down to truth. You see, to Mike, Truth is truth. There's only one truth. It's either true or it's false. It's either right or it's wrong. And how does Mike base his truth? Right over there. It's true. And, and, and you see over here in Jerusalem, we don't understand how you can not believe there's a truth. There's a foundational truth. But truth over here in Babylon, truth in Babylon means, listen, this is what truth means. Truth is whatever is right for you and whatever benefits you the most, that is your truth. Everybody can have their own truth. And anybody who says that this is truth and this is true for everybody, anybody who dares believe that is an intolerant, they're bigot, they're anti-diversity, they're wrong. That is how the world operates. And you, teenage, how many, 
You're here and you're 11 years old to 18, 19. Let me see your hands. Raise your hand. You're, the age you are, Daniel was younger than you when he was thrown into Babylon. You are fighting this war, young people. And let me tell you something, kids. Parents, some of your kids believe exactly what I'm saying. Where you go to school, Blake? Burlington Christian Academy. And, and look, good school. Alamance Christian School, good school. My grandkids go to Burlington Christian Academy. Let me tell you something, and that's a Christian school. They, they believe right, they teach right. But I'm gonna, I promise you this, what grade are you in? Seventh grade, I promise you, I guarantee you, there are kids, Christian kids at Burlington Christian Academy in the seventh grade at Burlington Christian Academy that believe evolution is true and not creation. I promise you there are. Parents, you make a fatal mistake. Babylon is gonna educate your children if you don't. You can send your kids to any school you want to, but you're responsible for them. If playing ball made spiritual children, we'd be in the stinking millennium in this country right now. Sorry. Truth. Back to truth. Before I get in trouble. My car ain't running. I usually keep my car running when I preach like that. <laughs> my car ain't running. I'm afraid to say it now. Okay. Truth. Truth today. Truth in the postmodern is a kind of an archaic terms, but it's where we are. Postmodern truth is whatever is best for you. Listen to me. If lying will get you ahead, then lying is okay. If cheating will benefit you, then cheating's okay. Now there there are variations on it, but I'm just telling you that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And it goes from, from socio-spiritual to the other gamut. Give me the last one, guys. Drop it down. Now, what does that say? Jesus' resurrection. Now, over here in Mike's, and again, it's, it's, it's generational. Mike's age, Mike's culture, Mike's raising, Mike's values. When I say Jesus' resurrection, Here's what it means to Mike. It means that Jesus Christ was God's son. He left earth. He came and he was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay for my sins. They buried him and he was dead, but God supernaturally, miraculously raised him from the grave, raised him from the dead, and now he's in heaven and he's coming back and I'm saved through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That's what you, and that what you believe? How many of you believe that? Okay, now listen. All right. Over here in Babylon, again, they use our same vocabulary. They don't use our dictionary. Over here in Babylon, you ask these Babylonian theologians, the Babylonian philosophers, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. And doing research for this message, and I'm almost through. Doing research for this message, I came across the name of a, a guy named Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, Marcus Borg, B-O-R-G. He, he, he is famous in Babylon. He, was, he, he retired from the university, from Oregon State University as a professor of religion and culture. The reason I found him online is he died on January 21st last month. He was a leader in what is called the Jesus Seminar. 
a group of Bible scholars got together and they analyzed the Bible and, and history and, and they came up with the historical Jesus and they came up, they said that Jesus did not say 80% of the things the four gospels say he said. But Marcus Borg, he, he was a Lutheran. He had a canon of theology in the Lutheran church. I don't know what that means, but it was not a priest, but it was a theological canon, C-A-N-O-N. But anyway, here's, he said, here's what he said. And he, was, he is the leading theologian in the progressive movement. This is what they said, Dr. Borg, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He said, absolutely. And they said, well, define that. And he's, listen to what he said, quoting him verbatim. Though the body of Jesus remains buried in an unmarked Palestinian grave, his deathless spirit marches on to inspire. Dr. Borg, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Absolutely. Well, what does it mean? It means that Jesus Christ was a man and his bones and his body are buried in Israel in an unmarked Palestinian grave, but his deathless spirit marches on to inspire us to do good to our fellow man. That's what they believe. The language of the Chaldeans, that's how they speak it. Thank you guys. You can just throw that down and you know, give them a hand. They did good for us. And, and I, again, I got a bunch more to say, but I, I'm through. I'm, time's up. But next Sunday, I'm going to finish this, and I'm going to show Next Sunday, I've been talking about how bad it is and what it does, but next Sunday, I'm going to show you how Daniel and them responded and how we're supposed to respond today and what God does, what God honors. So I'm going to get to the other side of the coin. Just give me time next week. I've said this in early service. I want to say it now. If you look at this culture, especially people my age and older, if you look at this culture, you can get depressed, you can get defeated, you can get discouraged, you can get fatalistic. But some of you are raising your children. Where I'm raising my grandchildren. Let me tell you this. Listen to me. I've read the back of the book, and we win. We win this thing. All right, now listen. Look, what Harvest, Harvest Baptist Church, the entity, you and me, and, and our, our organization at Harvest Baptist Church, we base everything we do on the fact that we are in a culture war. And our children and our grandchildren, we, we want to teach them and train them and help you. That is what we do. That's how we do it, all right? And I'm telling you that, and, and you see Daniel and his, his four companions, you don't sequester your kids away from the culture. I'm going to talk about it next week. How you can, re how can you react to it? But look, you can salvage your children. We can salvage our grandchildren. I know that God wants to use them, and and I I am not defeated. I'm not discouraged. I'm honored that God put put me to live in this culture at this time. God has got a great trust in us, Amen. And He's given us His power, His Spirit, His Word. We're going to win. You can salvage your kids. And right now, you pray for them every day. You pray that God to save your kid's soul and salvage their lives. And God's powerful. Greater is he that's in us than he's in the world. Now that we understand, don't we? Amen. Don't be defeated. Don't be discouraged. Just know what we're up against. But the darker the night, the brighter the light. And God's going to bring us through this. Whether you have kids, grandkids, 
niece or nephews. What an encouraging message from Pastor Lambert about sticking to the fight and training them up and showing them through Jesus Christ. Tune in next week as Pastor concludes this message from the book of Daniel.